Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we'd like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full full of grace, the Lord Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou thou among women, and and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Fall confirmation season has arrived, and on this episode, Bishop Rhodes talks about his message for the youth of our diocese as they are confirmed in the Holy Spirit. Then it's on to the lives and legacies of a few soon-to-be saints, including Archbishop Oscar Romero and Mother Mary Catherine Casper. Both will be canonized in Rome this weekend. The show wraps up with a reflection on Jesus' call for material detachment, then Bishop answers questions submitted by listeners. To submit yours, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thank you for being here again. You're welcome, Kyle. Great to be here. It's uh, gotten into fall confirmation season. I always think of confirmation as being a, a spring thing, but you, you've got so many confirmations to do. You do some in the fall, some in the spring. Uh, you've done a couple of them already this fall, is that right? I have. I've done two. I, um, last month, I had confirmation at St. Patrick's Parish in Fort Wayne, mm-hmm. about 62 young people. And then just last Friday evening, I had confirmation at St. Matthew's Cathedral in South Bend, and, and that was for children from three parishes, St. Matt's, but also St. Jude's and St. Anthony parishes. But I have several coming up. As you said, it's impossible for me to do them all in the spring. There's just not enough time. So I was grateful to the parishes that were willing to, to move the confirmations to the fall sure. with a little nudging from me. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but no, I love doing the confirmations. And... I imagine from year to year, your message to confirmation students would be fairly similar. I mean, it's the same sacrament and generally the same age of students from year to year. Does anything change from your, from one homily to the next or from one year to the next? I usually do a different homily every year, although there are similarities. I mean, I always talk about what, you know, what confirmation is, uh-huh. the graces that come, how we receive the strength of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to our faith in word and deed. 
So I'm encouraging the young people to live their faith with conviction. Sometimes I'll ask them questions about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and I'll review what each gift is, or I'll go through the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I'll talk about Pentecost. I mean, there's a variety of things. This year, uh, well, I think spring last year, I talked a lot about sacraments. And I probably will continue that because I don't think I did it last fall. But basically kind of reviewing with them these how wonderful it is to be Catholic, to have these sacraments. And I talk a good bit about the connection between baptism and confirmation mm -hmm. and the importance of living the grace of those two sacraments. And of course, I also talk about the Holy Eucharist. So also, oftentimes I'll use the I'll look and see which saint names they have on there because they have name tags, right. and I'll see one and it'll catch my eye, and I'll talk about that saint as an example of of what I'm talking about in the homily. Uh -huh. So sometimes the homily varies. Um, I probably should try to think of some new ideas, but I've been doing confirmations now for 13 <laughs> years. Trying to yeah. think of new ideas is is a challenge. I sometimes will talk about the meaning of the chrism and uh -huh. or all kinds of things that might come to my mind. But it's really great, and I usually ask questions. Well, I always ask questions, some questions, just to get the kids engaged in the homily. You put people on the spot or have no, them raise I usually, hands? No, usually not. Usually I'll only call on those who raise their hands. Okay. Yeah. What do you think is the most common confirmation saint chosen? Oh, that's a good question. It's one that you hear over and over. I hear Sebastian a uh -huh. lot. That was mine. Yes, and you have a son, Sebastian. <laughs> yeah. Of course, he's the patron saint of athletes. Uh -huh. So a lot of the young people who are athletes will choose Sebastian. Yeah. Uh, I'll often hear Cecilia, uh -huh. that's, and that's she's the patron saint of Musicians, music. Right. So I will hear, uh, yeah, there's a good number of Cecilias. Let's see, are there any others that, that really stand out? Well, in Hispanic communities, uh, parishes with a lot of Hispanics, a lot will choose the name St. Jude Thaddeus. Really? The Apostle Jude. Uh -huh. Judas Tadeo. And a lot will choose Juan Diego or Guadalupe. Uh -huh. So sometimes the culture impacts which saints that they will choose. Francis is fairly popular, too. And I think maybe that's not only St. Francis, but also that name with, with Pope Francis. John Paul is pretty popular. Teresa is quite popular. Usually it's St. Therese uh -huh. of, of the Child Jesus. St. Clair is pretty popular. So yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. Maximilian for a time was quite popular from St. Maximilian Colby. Can a female choose a male saint for a confirmation saint and vice versa? Yeah, there are a few, usually a couple at every confirmation okay. that have done that. But it's not real common. It's not very common, but every now and then. Because it's really just a saint that you look up to. Their right. gender isn't necessarily... Right, exactly. I mean, every now and then a, a young man might choose the name Mary because he has devotion to the Blessed Mother. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of young people and youth, we've got some events happening in Rome, one of which is the Synod of Young People, the Faith and Vocational Discernment. This is going to be through October 28th, and there's been so much preparation. I mean, years ago, we were talking about this and prepping and doing surveys in the diocese, and then that was collected and then matched up, I believe, with, I don't know if it was the state or the national level, and collected and compiled and then passed on to the Vatican. What has been some of the planning and what are some of the goals of this synod? Well, what's really important is engaging our youth in the life of the church. 
I haven't been following very closely the synods, mm-hmm. the synod because of other things. But, but I would think the fruit that I would hope would come would be a better understanding of the situation of our young people. Of course, it's very different because this is a world synod of bishops. Right. So, the situation of a of a young person in in let's say uh, Ethiopia as opposed to a young person here in the United States, right. they're very different. So, you know, there's different cultures, different uh, economic situations. There are countries like in Africa where it's so, the big thing for young people is they can't find work, they can't mm. find jobs. So it's gonna depend. And then you have the West, Western Europe, United States, Canada, where you have the influence, strong influence of secularism. And we have this growth of the the people who are unaffiliated, young people who are leaving the church or unaffiliated with any religion, kind of the new atheism as well, which you don't see in Latin America very much or in Africa. So there's a lot of differences. But I would hope that the fruit would be a greater understanding by the bishops, because it's bishops who participate in the synod, of uh, the situation of youth throughout the world and involvement in the life of the church, listening to what their needs are. Mm -hmm. And then not only that, I think what we really need to do is use the gifts of our young people. They're not just recipients, but also they have so much to offer with their talents to the church's mission of spreading the gospel. But we need to invite them. We need to engage them in our parishes. I think here on the local level, we're having our annual workshop for priests. It's a continuing education, uh-huh. continuing formation of priests. And the focus of our workshop this year is young adult ministry. Okay. And because that's a priority of mine. Again, it's the same thing, trying to engage our young adults. And that's those in college or after college in their 20s and 30s, kind of the millennials, because that's the generation that we're losing the most. So mm-hmm. I think we need to put more more of our energy in reaching out to young adults and getting them involved in our parishes. And also, we had a a great conversation with some young adults here on the show. If people want to go back and listen to the July 18th episode, that uh, is a great opportunity to to check out some of the conversation that happened then. Uh, Is the diocese sending anybody uh, from staff or otherwise to the synod? No, no, because it's very, yeah, it's... It's a very uh, exclusive group. It's there's only certain number of bishops from around the world, okay. and, and and just uh, you know some young people. But it's there might be like three young people from the United States, you know, gotcha. that would speak at it, you know, because it's all the whole world. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, another thing that's happening this coming Sunday, October 14th, is uh, a big canonization day. We've got three different canonizations. One, actually, you've talked about this earlier, has a local connection, which I didn't realize until you had explained that. Can you share that with us again? Yes, because she's kind of getting overshadowed by some more famous uh, uh, saints. But blessed Mary Catherine Casper the foundress of the poor handmaids of Jesus Christ is being canonized on Sunday. I mean, what a beautiful life. You know, I encourage our people, if you haven't been to Donaldson in our diocese, we have a, that's the mother house for the U.S. province of the poor handmaids. Because mm-hmm. um, it has, I think, one of the most beautiful chapels in the diocese. Hmm. But anyhow, uh, Mother Catherine was born in 1820 in Germany in a city or town called Dernbach. You know, in the 19th century, where we have these incredible women who founded religious communities, and uh, some of them from Germany or France, and many of them 
came to the United States, and they had such a huge impact on the growth of the church in the United States, like the, the poor handmaids of Jesus Christ right here in our diocese, or the, uh, the Sisters of St. Francis of Perpetual Adoration, where their mother house is in Mishawaka. That was also Blessed Maria Theresia Banzel. She was also German. Hmm. And then from France, we had the Sisters of the Holy Cross up at St. Mary's Notre Dame. So these, these women of faith, these new religious communities that began in the 19th century in Europe and sent missionaries to the United States. Catherine Casper had a very interesting life. I mean, she didn't have a lot of education, but well, she missed school a lot because she was sick a lot as a child. And her father died when she was 21 years old and, and she had to then take care of her mother. She was responsible for her mother and had to support her and herself. You know, she wanted to serve the poor and she had this calling, this vocation to help the poor and the abandoned and the sick. But it was kind of difficult because she was trying to take care of her mom. But she did, and her works of charity attracted other young women of the village of Dernbach to also do the same, to visit and help the poor and the sick and the abandoned. So she would go to a chapel, a small chapel called Halborn, and she loved the Blessed Virgin Mary very much. And she felt this voice this, within her, this prompting of the Holy Spirit to build this house and to devote more of her time to works of charity with these women who joined her. And four young women joined her, and it was when she was 31 years old in the year 1851, they became a religious congregation. And they were called the Poor Handmaids of Jesus Christ. That's named after Mary. Mm -hmm. Mary who said at the Annunciation, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done to me according to your word. So like Mary, like the Blessed Virgin Mary, blessed soon-to-be Saint Mary Catherine Casper responded with courage to God's will. As I said, she was born in 1820. She died in 1898. She never came to the United States, but she did send sisters here. Mm -hmm. And we're celebrating this year, we've been celebrating the 150th anniversary of the poor handmaids of Jesus Christ in our diocese. And isn't it amazing, or in America for that matter, and isn't it amazing in this same year we're celebrating her canonization. Yeah. So as of this Sunday, she'll be known as St. Mary Catherine Casper. So the poor handmaids of Jesus Christ and their associates in Donaldson and, and, and beyond, the sisters staffed you know, St. Joseph Hospital in Fort Wayne, and also they staffed a lot of our schools. They've done so much here in our diocese, uh, really part, as I said, of the growth of the church in our diocese. And, you know, they rejoice at the canonization of their foundress, but I think it's also good for our whole diocese to rejoice in this canonization. So I'll be celebrating a mass at the chapel, Ancilla Domini Chapel in Donaldson. Okay. Uh, I forget the date, in a couple weeks, uh, a mass celebrating the canonization. I did have a mass some weeks ago celebrating the 150th anniversary of the uh -huh. sister's arrival in the United States, but now it'll be another mass celebrating her canonization. All right. And then, as you mentioned, she's sometimes being overshadowed by two other soon-to-be saints, Archbishop Oscar Romero and Pope Paul VI. I want to talk about them in just a little bit. Also, we'll talk a little bit about the gospel 
inviting us to sell all we have and giving it to the poor and get into questions asked by you, the listener, right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we were talking about the canonization that was going to be happening this Sunday involving blessed, soon-to-be Saint Mary Catherine Casper, also Archbishop Oscar Romero, a martyr, and Pope Paul VI, who is probably most known for his encyclical Humanae Vitae. Is, is that kind of his legacy that he leaves, or does Humanae Vitae maybe overshadow some of the other things that he was well known for as well. Yeah, I think probably in history, that'll probably be the the, the document that he's most remembered for. Uh-huh. Although, I think also he's remembered as the Pope who, who I, I probably even probably be remembered most would be that he presided over the last three sessions of the Second Vatican Council. Sure. And then, of course, its implementation in the years that followed, which mm-hmm. were a very turbulent time, the 60s and the 70s. But the, certainly the encyclical Humanae Vitae would also be part of his legacy, that beautiful encyclical on married love. And then also along with them, we mentioned Archbishop Oscar Romero. He was martyred in El Salvador, where he was the archbishop. Yes, he was the archbishop of San Salvador in, in the country, El Salvador which had this terrible civil war and unrest in the 1970s. And he was a very, very good and holy priest. But he wasn't real, I would say, real vocal regarding what was happening in his country until his close friend and fellow priest was killed in 1977. And that was when he became the archbishop, just as he was beginning to serve as Archbishop of San Salvador, Father Rutilio Grande was killed, 1977. This affected him so deeply. Now, during the 70s, there was this political violence in the country, so many violations of human rights, people would disappear and people didn't, you know, the families didn't know where they were. Hmm. There were many who were murdered. And there were a lot of priests and nuns who were speaking out on behalf of the victims. So, so that's why, that's what Father Rutilio Grande did. That's why he was killed. But after his friend's murder, that's when Archbishop Romero started to speak out so strongly on behalf of the suffering and the marginalized. And he, he spoke out against the violence, especially of people in the villages and the poor who were being killed. And so he would have these homilies on the radio and uh, the people across the nation in all these small villages would listen to his homilies. So they were finding strength and comfort in his words. Of course, this was, and he's denouncing the violence. He's, he's encouraging the people to live the gospel of peace and love. So he was using his, his position as archbishop to speak on the behalf of the voiceless, mm-hmm. of the poor who were suffering so much. And of course, this upset the powers that be. Um, while he was celebrating mass, it was March 24th, 1980, he was shot and killed. But he's a hero in that country today. His writings have been spread, beautiful writings, especially regarding peace and um, writings and homilies about the poor and the suffering. They're really beautiful. And uh, he really is a hero 
in El Salvador today. Mm-hmm. Now, here, all these years later, we see this a lot of violence in El Salvador. That's why we have, you know, so many of those young people trying to come into the United States, sure. the drug cartels and uh, street gangs and everything. So, I think when we think of the the legacy of Archbishop Romero, well, what's going on today in El Salvador? His message is needed there today. And the church really since that time, since Archbishop Romero really stands on behalf of the poor, which is really beautiful to see. Also, I want to mention Catholic Relief Services, CRS. We work quite a bit with the Catholic Church in El Salvador Mm -hmm. to promote peace there. And we especially work helping at-risk youth and their families to overcome poverty and violence by teaching them skills for life, for work, et cetera, vocational training, help them to get jobs, all those things. And we've served thousands of young people in El Salvador. But I think our, our staff, our workers in El Salvador have this devotion to Archbishop Romero, and they uh, pray for through his intercession as they serve the poorest, these poorest brothers and sisters in, uh, in El Salvador. You know, as we celebrate the, his canonization as a martyr, maybe it'll also be an occasion for greater peace mm-hmm. in that country and well, throughout the world. Because really, his message and his life aren't just for the people of El Salvador, but for the world. Sure. Uh, and you talking about helping the poor, this upcoming Sunday's gospel talks about this rich young man who comes to Jesus and wants to follow him and wants to inherit the kingdom of God and asks what he needs to do. And he says, you need to follow the commandments. He says, I've done that. He says, you're lacking one thing, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At that statement, his face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. This particular scripture has always kind of uh, almost like just shot like a dagger, like, ooh, that hurts to, to hear that because I can almost hear Jesus saying that to me, that I need to sell these things. And, and in fact, it actually drove me to a point right after college that I did exactly that. I sold everything that I have and I went down to Honduras for a year. But I realized also there's kind of a, a lack of practicality to that, to be able to do that for your whole life, especially for those that have families and, and careers and things. How are we to interpret this as far as a call to help the poor and then kind of this radical version of that that might sound not very practical? I would answer that in a couple ways. I think God does call certain people to sell all they have uh-huh. and follow him. And that's why we have, for example, uh, vows of poverty in yeah. the Catholic Church, those called to live a life of poverty, those who are consecrated religious, for example. But every Christian is called to be detached from material things. Now, this rich young man in the uh, gospel that you mentioned was observing all the commandments. I mean, mm-hmm. He was a good man. But Jesus knew there was, some, there was something in his heart that was, was problematic. He was too attached to his wealth. Mm-hmm. That was an obstacle to his following God's will in his life. It was an obstacle to his following Jesus. So 
material things and money can also do that in our lives. If we become too attached, if we give too much importance to money and material things. But the reason I think Jesus said to this rich young man to sell everything and give to the poor was because it was his material things that were keeping him away from following Jesus. It was what was preventing him from doing God's will. He was just too attached to money. I also always think about when, when Jesus said that to him. The gospel says that Jesus looked at him with love. Hmm. And then he said, you're lacking one thing. Go sell what you have and give to the poor. Jesus looked at him with love. I mean, he wanted this young man's salvation. He wanted him to be happy. Right. And the only way he was going to be happy is if he detached himself from these material things. And sadly, he didn't. And that's why the gospel says he went away sad. Mm -hmm. Because he had many possessions, he just was too attached to them. So you're getting back to, yeah, God is not calling everyone to sell everything they have. Obviously, you have to provide for your, for your family. Uh, most people have to do that. But you are called to be detached from material things. In other words, to be generous, to be generous with the poor, not to uh, just accumulate wealth and not share that wealth with those who are in need, and not to put that, make that more important than, let's say, your family or more important than God. Mm -hmm. So it's a really important uh, gospel. It's one of my favorite, actually. I remember when St. John Paul II, his first visit to the United States, this was the gospel that, uh, oh, no, no, it wasn't that. That was the uh, Lazarus and the, and the rich man, uh -huh. which is also a similar uh, message for us. Right. Um, the rich man who, who neglected the poor Lazarus who was sitting at his door every day. Again, it's a, it's a parable that teaches us generosity. Uh, you know, Jesus is teaching us to avoid greed, to avoid greed in all its forms. In that same gospel, you know, the disciples were pretty amazed. Jesus said how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Right. That's because the wealthy can be attached, too attached to their material things. And I actually think that they don't need God because they have all this, these possessions, mm -hmm. all this money. That's why it's important, especially that wealthy people share their wealth mm -hmm. and, and assist the poor. And it says the disciples were amazed at those words. And um, when Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for one who is rich to enter the kingdom of God, that was really astonishing. And then they, the, the disciples started saying, well, then who can be saved? Right. You know? and, and that's when our Lord said, for human beings, it is impossible, but not for God. All things are possible for God. So we have to rely on God's grace. We have to rely on God's mercy. And God will help us to really put him first, give him the number one priority in our life. I remember in the Sermon on the Mount, I think it is, where Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That should be our motto, really. Mm -hmm. The line that you said there, that all things are possible for God, which is his response, then how are we, how are human beings going to get to heaven if, if it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle? You know? Some people could say, okay, well, then it doesn't really matter what I do because all things are possible for God. So it's impossible for me to earn my salvation. Accurate, right? We don't right. earn it. Right. Uh, so I shouldn't even try 
God will forgive me for whatever I mess up and do. You know, that's the sin of presumption, um, hmm. you know, presuming upon God's mercy. So I would say we have to avoid that, but we have, uh, that's a sin against hope. But the other sin against hope is despair. So, in a sense, you can hear that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for one who is rich to enter the kingdom of God, and you can kind of despair. Right. Uh, but no, it's all about God's mercy. But then to think that, oh, it's okay for me to be selfish yes. and to not care about the poor and just presume on God's mercy, that's a grave sin against hope. So, I hope that helps. Um, I presume it does. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, if you have questions for Bishop, you can ask by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. Coming up, we have a question about mortal sin when you are confused about the truth. And more coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop asking the questions that you've submitted for him to answer. Our first question comes from Father Eric Bergner, parochial vicar of St. Pius X in Granger. says, do you have a favorite church in Rome? Father Eric, wow. You know, I just love the churches of Rome. Anyone who I know who's visiting Rome, I always say, to visit the four major basilicas. Uh -huh. I think that should be your priority. If you're making a pilgrimage to Rome, go to St. Peter's Basilica, the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls, St. Mary Major, and St. John Lateran. Uh -huh. There are so many other beautiful, beautiful churches. Uh, it's hard for me to name one. I'm trying, I'm struggling a little bit with this question, <laughs> but I love to pray in St. Peter's Basilica at particular places like in the crypt, hmm. um, in the Blessed Sacrament Chapel there, at the tomb of St. John Paul II. So I would probably say my favorite church is St. Peter's Basilica. Oh, I also do love the chapel at St. Mary Major, which has the image of Mary, ancient image of Mary called Salus Populi Romano. Romani, which means the salvation or health of the Roman people. And that's hmm. a side chapel that's really beautiful. And I love to pray there too. I won't ask you what your favorite church in the diocese is. Might oh, get I'll you get in trouble. In trouble. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we will group these together because this question is related. How often do you go to Rome and what do you talk about when you meet with Pope Francis? There's no uh, set time uh, of how often I would go to Rome. It could be years in between. Generally, there's supposed to be a, a bishop supposed to go every five years. Okay, uh, the odd limit of visit with the pope, but they're so behind; they've been delayed. It's it's probably the next odd limit of visit will be next November, November 2019. The last one was in 2011, so okay. that's eight years instead of five. Yeah. So I only met Pope Francis personally once, and that was a few years ago. Actually, I met him twice in the same week. But that's the only time I personally met him. It was just a brief conversation. Uh, I don't. We talked just very briefly. I introduced who I was, and he asked for prayers. Mm -hmm. It was very simple. During an odd limit of visit, though, it's a more extended conversation where I'll get to tell him or, or explain some things about the diocese, tell him certain things about the diocese, and and then it's more of a com real conversation, more of a dialogue. 
how long would that last? Depends on the Holy Father. Sure. I mean, with Pope Benedict, it was it wasn't individual. It was with all the bishops of Indiana. Oh, okay. So the five dioceses. But I have to say, the conversation with Pope Benedict, I probably of the among all the bishops had the most uh, most words with him uh-huh. for some reason. But I don't know how Pope Francis does it. Pope John Paul used to do individual meetings with each bishop. Huh. But Pope Benedict didn't, and I don't think Pope Francis does either. But you can imagine all the bishops of the world. That's kind of difficult for the Pope. And does that conversation take place in English? It depends. Um, Yes, with Pope Benedict, it was in English. When I was speaking with Pope Francis, just him and me, it was Uh in Spanish, because I knew that in English would have been more difficult for him. Okay. When it's the odd limit of visit, if it's just him and me, I'll speak in Spanish. If it's with the group of bishops from Indiana, I imagine the conversation would be in English, but the Pope does struggle a bit with English. So would he have a translator or just I think he gets the gist of it. I mean, I don't know because I haven't seen that yet. Maybe he can understand it, but he's kind of shy about speaking English. Do you get nervous? Not anymore. I used to be nervous when I'd meet a Pope, but I kind of don't now. Uh I don't know why. Do you do much preparation for what you're going to say and what you want to talk about? Well, we do a quinquennial report. You know, it's like a 200-page report hmm. that I have to give to the Vatican on the state of the diocese. So that's all prepared during the year before the ad of visit. And then each part of it goes to the different Vatican departments. Okay. It's a Catholic education. So the chapter on our Catholic schools will go there. There's a, a pontifical council for health care. So my report on healthcare in our diocese would go there. Mm-hmm. Catechesis, whatever it might be, the state of marriage in our diocese or the state of the clergy or the seminarians, vocations. You know, mm-hmm. There's all these topics that you have to cover and then they get shared with each of these departments and a summary is prepared for the Pope. So that's a lot of work to prepare that, but I, my staff really helps a lot with that quinquennial report. And during that week of the odd limit of visit, or nine days, we have to go to each of these departments of the Holy See, so we have more extensive conversations with them about what's happening in our diocese in those particular areas of ministry. Okay. What does quinquennial mean? Uh, it means every five years. Okay. But again... This report that I'm preparing is going to have to cover eight years, because huh. the last one was in 2011. An octennial? Yeah, an octennial, whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, Andy Wright from Saints Peter and Paul Parish in Huntington writes, how does God judge a person who commits mortal sin but doesn't believe and or know that they are committing mortal sin? An example would be a terrorist who commits an evil act but believes it's for a greater cause. Okay, that's tough. You know, First of all, I think everybody knows there's three conditions that are necessary for a mortal sin to exist. I'll just review that. I think we did that on a recent show. Yeah. It has to be grave matter, first of all. The act has to be in itself Uh, seriously wrong, like intrinsically evil, for example. But one has to have full knowledge, and one has to give deliberate consent. Mm -hmm. So freedom, in other words, one has to freely choose to commit the sin. But they have to know that what they're doing or planning to do is evil. So I think the question from Andy, how does God judge a person who commits a mortal sin 
but doesn't believe, I think he should probably say who commits a sin, maybe a grave sin, like a terrorist, but doesn't believe or know that they are committing mortal sin. Well, that gets to the issue of full knowledge. Right. Is that condition there? Does the person know that what they're doing or planning to do is evil and immoral? That's very tough because you'd think, oh, a terrorist who commits an evil act but believes it's for a greater cause. But does he know that what he's doing is evil, even if it's for a greater cause? If he does, then he's committed a mortal sin. I suppose also the deliberate consent thing might come in to play. It seems like in some different stories that I've heard of uh, American terrorists, there might be an an element of brainwashing that might that's true inhibit that's true. their consent ability. That's true. I, I you know I think of that in the sin of suicide. Mm-hmm. You know it's grave matter taking one's own life, but. I think there's very few who freely choose that right. because of their psychological condition, mm-hmm. deep depression or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think God is merciful in those situations. So I, I would find it hard to believe in most suicides that there's really deliberate consent. It's, it's, uh, I mean, God's the judge, I can't say, but that's what I would think. Okay. Well, if you have questions, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we'll talk about particular judgment versus final judgment, giving money to beggars, and more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. I'm asking questions that you've submitted for bishop to answer. And one of our listeners asked, can you explain the difference between particular judgment versus final judgment? I know particular judgment occurs when we die. Are we then judged again at the final judgment? Good question. Of course, we can look to the Catechism of the Catholic Church because it talks about both these judgments. As the listener uh, presented it, it's correct. It's when we die, there's an immediate judgment. Our soul stands in judgment before God immediately. We have to give an account for our lives, for the good we've done, for the sins we've committed. That's the particular judgment. We call it the particular judgment because it's particular to each person. And of course, if we're free of all sin and and uh, the remnants of sin, the hurt caused by sin, we go to heaven immediately. If we die with venial sins or other remnants of sin we haven't uh, done penance for, then there would be purgatory. And of course, if a person has rejected God with mortal sins and no remorse, the person would go to hell. So that's, that's what happens at the particular judgment. When we talk about the final judgment, we're talking about the end of time, the second coming of Christ. Mm-hmm which we say in the, in the creed that he will come to judge the living and the dead. So when we talk about the, uh, the universal or the final judgment or the last judgment, it's not uh, only of an individual standing alone, but standing as part of, of society, as part of the whole community of mankind. So the person who was already judged will remain in heaven or in hell 
but those who haven't died yet, when Jesus comes in the second time, that's their particular judgment as well. But the important thing when we think about the last judgment or the general judgment, it's not a repetition of the particular judgment, but it's really when God is establishing his kingdom in its fullness over all creation, over all history. So then what's fully manifested is all that is good and all that is evil is fully manifested. So all the good that, or evil that we've done as, individual, as individuals is manifested at the final judgment. I think uh, a quote from the Catechism might be helpful here. The Catechism says, the last judgment will come when Christ returns in glory. Then, through his Son, Jesus Christ, he will pronounce the final word on all history. We shall know the ultimate meaning of the whole work of creation and of the entire economy of salvation and understand the marvelous ways by which his providence led everything toward its final end. The last judgment will reveal that God's justice triumphs over all the injustices committed by his creatures and that God's love is stronger than death. So what's revealed at the last judgment the good each person has done or failed to do during his or her earthly life. So God's justice over all creation and history is established. All right. Jennifer Barton said, I drive twice a week to school and there's a panhandler who's always stays in a certain spot along the road. He seems to have the spot picked out and on the days he isn't there, he leaves a pile of trash in the grass. I never give money to such people, partly because I rarely carry cash, but also because of the many stories I've heard of panhandlers. On the other hand, I sometimes feel guilty because I know that as a Catholic, I should help the poor. How do I handle situations like this when I encounter beggars on the street? You know, it's sometimes hard. I mean, I go to certain cities like Baltimore mm -hmm. um, where there's a lot of panhandlers, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't have enough to give to everybody, and it kind of gets difficult. But what I try to do sometimes is strike up a conversation with the person and not just ignore them, mm -hmm. um, you know, depending on the time. I have people like that coming to my house sometimes, too, hmm. and knocking on my door. But I try to learn a little bit about their circumstances and their needs, and usually... You know, if they need food, if they come to my house, I'll give them some food, mm -hmm. sometimes money, little gift cards. I know people who will do that to McDonald's or, or someplace mm -hmm. uh, rather than give cash, which, of course, can be used for other things that aren't good. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, each person has to look in their own conscience. They don't want to get deceived or taken advantage of. But sometimes these are people in real, real need, and I don't want to pass one of those by if at all possible. So I think we've gotten questions similar to this in the past. Yeah. It is a tough thing to decide, but I don't think we should just always ignore beggars. And I suppose I've heard of some people, they have a, a card that would have phone numbers of agencies that could help. Uh, are there any agencies that you would recommend for these? Yeah, I give situations? them. I have little cards of Catholic charities, okay, and I'll give to people. Uh -huh. um, that's a really good. I'm glad you mentioned that because even if Catholic charities can't help them directly, Catholic charities can, and sometimes they can, mm -hmm. but sometimes Catholic charities refers them to a place that can help. Sure, because we have this whole network of charitable organizations. So depending on on their unique needs, 
All right. And finally, someone asked, did you ever play a musical instrument? I tried, but I didn't have the self-discipline. Uh, <laughs> I did play drums a little while, but I got bored with it. Like and, a drum uh, set? Yeah, a drum set, uh -huh. yeah. Anything that you wish you could play? I wish I could play piano. Okay. I really do. I do. I have in uh, certain times, you know, played a little bit of piano. Uh -huh. um, just kind of self-taught. Not very good, but I wish I would have as a, as a child. All right. Well, thank you again, Bishop, for another episode of Truth and Charity. I appreciate you taking out the time of your busy schedule to share with us today. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure, Kyle. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome. On our next episode, attorney and diocesan review board member Donald Schmid will join Bishop and Kyle for a conversation about youth protection in our diocese. To catch previous episodes of Truth and Charity, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.